0: Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Piston, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? Hello and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a show that goes beyond the field guide to tell you everything you need to know about an individual bird species, with foul language included. I'm John, and today I'm again recording from Otter Creek Wilderness. Uh, It's an awesome spot right near Elkins, West Virginia, and um, I mean, I'm just perched up in this bog, like surrounded by forest, really no human sounds, which is awesome. Spring still hasn't quite arrived here, there's a couple buds on the trees, but I was hoping that maybe this open area would be the breeding ground of today's topic, the Song Sparrow. This episode is actually a part two on Song Sparrows. Uh, part one, the episode right before this, I interview Professor Jeremy Hyman about Song Sparrows' territorial behavior. Um, I'll repeat some of that information in this episode, but you'll definitely want to check out the interview to get a full picture of this species. It's just incredible. These guys are, like, constantly at war fighting over little patches of territory, which, like, I mean, probably, like, it's your backyard, you know? Your backyard and maybe part of your neighbors, like, that's their whole life that they just spend defending, and Jeremy does a great job uh, talking about that, so totally check it out. Um, if you haven't though, you can still listen to this episode and you know check it out later. Uh, they don't have to go in order or anything. But anyway, in this episode, I'll be discussing some basic facts about song sparrows. I'll talk about their singing behavior, um, which gave them their common name. And I'll also wrap up with some evolutionary history along lots of other interesting facts. Before I start today's episode, though, I just have to do a little bit of like podcast promotion work. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to the show. First of all, I put a lot of work into these episodes. I always love when people engage with me via email, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com, or on my social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Good friend of the show and sometimes co-host, Tim, was kind enough to send me these bard owls duetting in his backyard in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks, Tim, so much for that recording. Uh, To all the other Dirty Birdies out there, send me your recordings, whether it's of birds or like, I don't know, you walking around watching a bird or just enjoying nature. You know, I'll play them on the show. One last thing I have to say before I start this episode, where the fuck are the reviews? I begged for them a few episodes ago. and. My mom was the only one to write me one. Thank you, mom. But seriously, people, if the show doesn't get reviews, no one else is going to find it or want to listen to it. Come on, help spread the Dirty Birdie love. Uh, I'm about to start residency soon, and I don't know, I might quit Dirty Bird if people don't show us some love. I mean, okay, I won't quit on the show, but when people write reviews and engage me on social media, it motivates me to make more episodes. Um, as kind of an incentive, I recently ordered more Dirty Bird podcast stickers. I'm making a pledge now if, uh, someone writes me a review and then, you know, just write me an email, you know, telling me, Hey, I'm the one that wrote that review, then I'll send you some stickers. If you listen on Spotify or aren't able to write a review on Apple podcasts, just email me. Uh, we'll figure something out and, uh, I'll send some free stickers your way. Alright, enough begging and promotions, let's get on with the birds. So today I'll be talking about a bird you have around you no matter where you are in the US, the Song Sparrow. This common bird is widespread and best known for its piercing song. And its song is what lends to its common name, Song Sparrow, obviously, but also to its scientific name. Its scientific name is Melospiza melodia. That genus, Melospisa, um, it shares with two other North American sparrows, Lincoln sparrow and the swamp sparrow. The genus name combines Latin melo, which means a song, think of melody, and also the Greek word "spiza," which means finch, because they got big beaks, they kind of look like finches. The species name Melodia is pretty self-obvious. It's Latin for song or melody. Um, so kind of its scientific name translates to songfinch song. It's pretty appropriate for this bird. For while it looks pretty drab, it has one hell of a singing voice. Like most sparrows, this is a fairly small bird with a plump round head and body. Sparrow identification has always been pretty hard for me. They're just like little brown birds, usually in the undergrowth, and they have just subtle variations to tell them apart. And the song sparrow only boasts of a few colors, brown, gray, black, and white. Also to make it even more difficult, this bird is super widespread and has a lot of subspecies with variations in its plumage. But there's a couple of field markers to help you pin this one down. First of all, its breast is covered in streaks of brown stripes, but in the center of its chest, these streaks converge into a brown or sometimes black central spot. The other way to identify a song sparrow is by looking at the head. Song sparrows have five brown or reddish-brown stripes on their face, one on the crown of their head, two just behind their eyes, and the last two just below their eyes. Separating these brown streaks is a gray-white eyebrow streak. I always kind of look for this when I'm looking at a song sparrow. You look for that gray eyebrow. And then also you look for a white mustache stripe that extends down from the base of their bill to their neck. So if you see a small brown bird usually hopping on the ground with a brown or black spot on its chest, a white mustache, and a gray eyebrow, you've just spotted a song sparrow. And of course, if you hear it sing, that's a dead giveaway too. And not only is this bird one of the most common sparrows in North America, but it's also one of the most, if not the most, widespread bird in North America. It's found across the U.S., far up into Canada, down into northern Mexico, and there's also some isolated populations in Baja California and the mountains of central Mexico. As I mentioned, there's many subspecies. Historically, there have been as many as 52 subspecies named, but genetic analysis has whittled these down to about 25. And this is way too many for me to like go into detail <laughs> explaining the subspecies, um, but I do want to point out a few things about them. They do follow Allen's rule. Remember good old Allen and Bergman? You guys sick of them yet? Um, So their rules for animals um, on body surface area. Um, Song sparrows follow Allen's rule throughout their range, meaning that in hotter climates, they have larger bill sizes to radiate off more heat. And then in colder climates, they have smaller bills to conserve heat. They follow Bergman's rule too. Um, This states that animals in colder climates have larger body sizes in order to limit surface area and conserve heat. And while there is a subspecies of song sparrow um, up in the Aleutian Islands of Alaska that is much larger than any subspecies and weighs twice as much as the average song sparrow, this isn't really due to Bergman's role. Like, it doesn't really account for being so fucking huge. This species is more an example of island gigantism, and they are just huge freaks. On the opposite end of the spectrum, there is a subspecies on the Channel Islands of California that is a nearly dwarf version of the mainland sparrows. Both those subspecies I just mentioned remind me of Brobdingnag and Lilliput Islands from Gulliver's Travels. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers high school English class, but there you go, run with that joke. Anyway, speaking of travels, hey, nice segue, Um, in the northern part of the Song Sparrows Range in Canada and along the Great Lakes populations of Song Sparrows, they're pretty migratory um, and they do something weird in their migration called leapfrog migration. Picture a map of North America, Canada sitting on top of the U.S. and Mexico the farthest south. The song sparrows in Canada and parts of the northern U.S. are migratory and don't want to shiver it out all winter. However, across the central part of the U.S., song sparrows like it year-round. It's not too hot in the summer. It's not too cold in the winter for them. So they're just going to stay put all winter, and they aren't going to tolerate any funny-speaking Canadian song sparrows spending the winter there. So migrating song sparrows have to leapfrog over the year-round song sparrows and spend the winter in the southern U.S. and northern Mexico. I'm kind of exaggerating here, there are areas where migratory song sparrows intermingle with the year-round song sparrows during the winter, Um, but you get my point, and this migration pattern was unique enough that I wanted to mention it. As a general rule of thumb, eastern subspecies are more migratory than subspecies in the western part of their range. It's not a hard and fast rule though, there are subspecies on the western coast that are migratory and sometimes there will be populations on adjacent islands or valleys that while they share similar climates and winter temperatures, one population will migrate and the others will not. Very rarely during migration these guys will get blown off course and end up in England or Norway. Generally within their range, you'll find these guys pretty much anywhere there are bugs to eat. Um, You find them in fields, suburban backyards, forests, tidal marshes, desert scrublands, Pacific rainforests, and arctic grasslands. If you live in a city or suburb, this is a great bird to observe. Unlike the pigeons, starlings, and house sparrows that normally crowd urban areas, the song sparrow is a native species. And after listening to this episode and the interview with Jeremy Hyman, you'll be an expert at identifying the song Sparrow's song and will know enough about its behavior to figure out exactly what its territory is and who its rivals are. One of my favorite things I learned in researching this bird is that they are constantly at war. Those pretty songs aren't just for fun, they are a battle cry. And with a little patience and effort, you can learn the battle lines in your neighborhood. So let's talk about its song and all the different vocalizations this bird makes. Male song sparrows sing songs that are a variation on a common theme. Each male song sparrow has a repertoire of songs, usually around 5 to 11. Each one of these songs contains two to six phrases, and each phrase contains a complex note or thrill. Males learn songs from an older Tudor male, Um, who are usually neighboring birds that they encounter during a sensitive learning period in their second and third month of life. This is a period where young males are fully fledged and out on their own for the first time. Sometimes they go ahead and establish their own territory if there's enough vacancy around, but usually they end up spending several months during the fall and winter moving about on the borders of other Song Sparrow territory. This is called a floater period, and during this time, they are constantly bumping across older males' more established territory and picking up on the songs that they are singing. Come spring, they will establish a territory within this floater territory. Uh, I am such a little kid. Every time I hear floater, I think of a poop joke. So, I, I won't do it. Just insert your own. <laughs> um... Anyway, the flutter territory is a much larger area than their eventual breeding territory, and during the fall and winter, they've learned much more songs than they really need. So in their newly established spring territory, they begin whittling down songs they know, focusing especially on learning the songs of the neighbors closest to them that they are constantly butting heads with over where the property line ends. This means that while male song sparrows end up having a lot of overlapping songs, they have a unique set of songs that reflect the neighbors around them. So they don't, like, sing a song that's totally unique to them and their neighbors hear it and are like, oh, that's Jim over there, you know, singing that little trill. Um, Instead, they're kind of singing the same kind of songs back and forth, but, like, the amount of songs that you know uh, kind of shows where you come from studies have shown that one bird in particular will serve as the primary tutor for a young male and teach them the majority of their songs this primary tutor seems to be chosen early on and require interaction during the winter and spring because if the primary tutor dies during the winter the young sparrow will lose many of that tutor's songs come spring they aren't being like reinforced constantly um, and he's not able to choose another primary tutor either. He kind of like cemented that bond uh, during the fall. Um, so, therefore, the total number of songs in his repertoire will be stunted. Well, there was a raven. Quark, quark, quark. I hear some chickadees too bouncing around. That first year of life is really vital to a Song Sparrow for song learning. Um, The male Song Sparrow does not change his repertoire or add songs after one year of life. And while they have a final repertoire of only those 5 to 11 select songs, they can recognize much more songs than this. Laboratory experiments using operant conditioning have shown song-sparrows can discriminate between up to 32 songs. So even if they don't sing a song that they hear in their neighbor's repertoire, they certainly know it and recognize it. When they do learn a song, they're really good at learning it. Uh, it matches very closely to that their tutors sing. 70-90% of song-sparrow songs can be traced back to some older tutor bird that they learned it from, and they imitate it very closely. They will sometimes add elements to songs or create, like, mashups of various tutors' singing repertoire. Um, Very rarely, though, a whole new song will be invented. And these new songs are rarely ever learned by other birds. Um, Song spares are kind of like, I don't know, like 14-year-old girls that only sing whatever's playing on the radio. It's possible young males create these new, unpopular songs as a way to kind of facilitate individual recognition um, but more research needs to be done on this so I like to think about song sparrows as being kind of like radio DJs on like whatever your local adult hits or top 40 um, you know station is they like to sing the songs that the other DJs are playing around them and stuff that's popular and that everybody's playing. But every once in a while, something just comes out that's so different and so cool that it kind of breaks the mainstream style and catches on. And of course, they're not just singing these songs for fun. Um, these songs are vital for the defense of their territory. I went over this with Jeremy, of course, but here's a quick reminder. Male song sparrows will sing back and forth in a behavior called counter singing. If a Song Sparrow wants to escalate the conflict to a full-blown turf war, he'll respond with the same song, and things might proceed from there to a chase or a pecking fight. If the rival male doesn't want to fight, but wants to make it known that he's not backing down either, he will choose a song from their shared repertoire, meaning a song that both the males know. And both birds will begin singing that new song back and forth. If he's just a total wimp, he will sing a song that the other male doesn't know, um, or will just stay silent and cower. So, from this, you can see that to be successful in dueling singing contests, neighboring song sparrows must share songs. Research has backed this up. The more songs a male song sparrow shares, God, I'm saying songs so much. (laughs) Um, The more songs a male shares with its neighbors, the more successful he is at holding territory. A random male that shows up and doesn't know any of the neighborhood songs is going to sound like he's backing down every time a rival male challenges him. Research has also confirmed that males that share songs together, specifically a tutor and the young male that learned from him that you know, had him as his primary tutor and thus knows a lot of his songs, have increased mutual survival, but no increased individual survival. The exact reason for this isn't clear. Uh, My hypothesis is that because they share a lot of songs together, they can more easily communicate and de-escalate or avoid conflicts and focus more on, you know, eating food or um, avoiding predators. But that's, you know, just what I'm thinking. But that's part of the great thing about these birds, there's so much ongoing research, and they're really easy to observe. Like, I challenge you to become an amateur ornithologist and start paying more attention to how they're responding to each other. Like, just go in your backyard or your park, I'm sure you have song sparrows, and listen, does the neighboring bird respond with the same song, indicating he's willing to fight? Does he respond with a different song than that original challenge song and then the birds began singing that one back and forth? Or does he respond with a totally different song, indicating that he's a coward? Another amazing aspect of these birds is that their songs, while very similar within their neighborhoods, vary a lot across territories. Um, And especially vary a lot across subspecies and east coast versus west coast. Jeremy mentioned this in his interview and compared them to accents. I thought this was a great example. I can just picture like a Savannah Georgia song sparrow singing its song. While uh, maybe up in New York, Hey, I'm Jay Pogo, and there's raptors everywhere. (laughs) Love you, Jay Pogo. Hope you still listen to the show. (laughs) Um, While songs are usually recycled inside neighborhoods, um, they undergo some minor variations, um, and they change subtly over time. Sometimes songs will spread beyond just a Sparrow's neighborhood, though. And occasionally sparrows will learn songs in one neighborhood, but then end up establishing territory in a different neighborhood. And that's how songs can kind of spread uh, throughout song sparrow populations. Experiments using song playback have shown that song sparrows don't appear to recognize their own songs. Rather, when they hear their own song played back to them, they think it's coming from like a rival neighbor. Resident Western subspecies seem to share more songs with their neighbors um, compared to Eastern migratory subspecies. The western ones share about 20 to 40 percent while the Eastern only share about 10% or less. And this isn't just because the Eastern subspecies are more migratory and like not around year round to listen and learn songs. Because there's been studies of migratory western populations, and it shows that they learn basically the same amount of song repertoire as non-migratory subspecies. So there's just something going on east to west where the western ones know more songs in common uh, versus the eastern ones. It's contentious whether a larger repertoire size correlates with increased fitness and reproductive success in male song sparrows. It's been weakly shown in some experiments, disproven in others. It is confirmed in other bird species though, that have similar behaviors. Not all vocalizations are learned just from other song sparrows though. Sometimes a song sparrow will mistake another species of bird as a tutor and learn its song. There's accounts of song sparrows learning from wild northern cardinals, wren tits, and northern water thrushes. There's even one account um, from Tioga Pass in Yosemite, where a song sparrow had learned the song of a white-crowned sparrow at some point and was frustratingly counter-singing back and forth with a probably equally confused male white-crowned sparrow. Also in lab conditions, song sparrows have learned from swamp sparrows and from canaries. They do give other vocalizations other than just singing, um, especially between mated pairs, there are a lot of chirping calls given. Also, like many birds, song sparrows in urban environments have had to change their songs in order to work around human-made noise. Most human-made noise occurs in the low-frequency range, think of like the rumble of a truck engine. Experiments have shown that urban song sparrows sing songs with more higher-frequency notes and emit most low-frequency notes in order to be heard over the racket us humans make. They also will increase the amount of calls and nonverbal signals such as wing-waving that they do, just to be noticed. Oh man, the wind's picking up. Hold on there, folks. I'm kind of hiding in some rhododendrons right now, so that helps keep the wind down. <laughs> but I noticed the wind scared the chickadees away a little bit. I don't think we're going to have a song sparrow come out today. I think it's still too cold up in the mountains, but... A man can only hope, right? As far as the feeding of these birds works, like most sparrows, song sparrows eat a lot of insects, including weevils, beetles, grasshoppers, caterpillars, and spiders. If it's slimy, creepy, or crawly, they will gobble it up. Audubon noticed this too, and in his painting of two song sparrows, one of them is reaching up to eat a spider dangling on a string of web. They also augment their diets with seeds and fruit, especially in the wintertime. Since they cover such a wide range, they sometimes have to be pretty creative in what they eat. For example, on the rugged coastline of British Columbia, song sparrows will eat the bird shit of glaucus-winged gulls. Also, song sparrows have been observed gulping down small minnows that they catch in streams. But for the most part, they seize insects and seeds that they find on the ground and scratch up leaf litter or flip over twigs to find food. While they mostly feed on the ground or kind of in low-lying shrubs and bushes, they will fly up to 20 or 30 feet into trees in search of food. And I did see one interesting account of a song sparrow patiently waiting by a known termite colony and seizing them as they emerge from hibernation in early June. This is a smart bird he knew where and when to find some bug food after a long winter. The breeding behavior of this bird is pretty amazing, Um, they're not too afraid of humans and sometimes nest uh, pretty close to people. Um, And even migratory song sparrows will have high levels of phylopatry, meaning that they return to the same general area where they were born to breed. Year after year they will return and defend the same territory, although minor boundary changes do occur also males that have died during the winter will be replaced by new males looking to establish territory they may abandon their territory if their nests fail or the resources get bad um, but usually they kind of stay around the same area they're a socially monogamous but genetically polygynous bird this means that while they form a bond of mommy and daddy song sparrow and raise their young together As much as 20% of all song sparrow young are from extra pair copulations. Female song sparrows do seem to prefer hooking up with their mate over strangers. Experiments show that they are more likely to solicit copulation, aka make some bedroom eyes, um, when presented with their mate song um, or songs similar to their mates. Different populations of song sparrows differ in how much extra pair copulations they engage in. Um, There appears to be a general trend that the further north um, and the higher the altitude the song sparrow population exists, the less cheating that they do. I mean, (laughs) I guess there's a reason there's all those swinger communities down in Florida, right? (laughs) Um, While mates will stay together through a breeding season, they may find new mates every year. There are certainly documented cases, though, of male and female song sparrows mating together year after year. The female's really not the one seeking out the sparrow sex on the side. Um, studies have shown that extra pair copulations come from males that encroach onto the territory. Sometimes a female, though, will luck out and engage in polyandry. Uh, this is where two males will help her raise one brood. This occurs very rarely. Um, A study I saw on the Mandart Islands of British Columbia found that 3.7% of females bred this way at least once. Um, And in almost all cases, it's because she kind of nested in an area that overlapped between two males. Or maybe there were like two floater males in that territory, so then they both helped her raise the young. Not sure which one had, you know, actually knocked her up. But I thought it was interesting. More traditionally though, the male attracts a mate by singing on his territory and also by stretching out his neck and flapping his wings. If a female likes him, they will do a courtship flight where they will fly together, assuming a weird posture with cocked up tails and dangling legs while they flutter their wings rapidly. And remember that holding territory means everything when it comes to breeding for these birds. There's a very intricate balance of power going on between male song sparrows based on a variety of factors. Um, the most interesting one, I think, is that each male song sparrow knows the unique song repertoire and personality of his neighbors and uses it to his advantage. Um, check out uh, where I talk with Jeremy about the deer Enemy effect. Um, this is where song sparrows respond less aggressively to well-known neighbors. However, this only applies if the neighbor follows the rules and stays within his boundaries. Some other studies have shown, though, that male song sparrows absolutely freak out if their neighbor breaks the peace treaty and begins singing within their territory. In fact, they respond more aggressively to this betrayal of their neighbor than they would if just some random stranger showed up in their territory. I joked earlier when uh, my episode with uh, Jeremy Hyman that this is due to bird PTSD, but it kind of is. Uh, Remember I was talking about how young male song sparrows have a primary tutor they learn the majority of their songs from? Uh, they learn the majority of their songs from this primary tutor, not from, like, a nice, happy, like, teaching relationship, but rather because this is the bird that they're constantly fighting against and, like, having territorial battles with. So, when they hear one of those songs, uh, they automatically kind of think about this tutor that they, I don't know, was constantly beating them back and singing that song over and over. So, I don't know, their eyes turn red and they just go crazy. And they'll really hold a grudge when a neighbor breaches the peace like this. Even after that neighbor retreats back to their correct territory, the male song sparrow will continue to retaliate against them. Song sparrows don't generally act like this year-round, though. During the non-breeding season, they are much more subdued. But as the summer breeding season approaches, male song sparrows become more aggressive and grow a pair. Quite literally. When you're a small flying bird, every bit of extra weight is a disadvantage. So many birds' reproductive organs will shrink away to almost nothing after breeding season is over, and then begin growing in size again in the spring. In song sparrows, the lengthening in days and also some unclear endogenous signals trigger a surge in LH and FSH. These stand for luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone. They're the same chemicals that are responsible for like the menstrual cycle and other sexual development in humans. Um, it's just like a teenage boy flood of hormones for these male song sparrows and their testicles start to enlarge and causes them to get randy and ready to fight. Female song sparrows also experience a similar enlarging of their ovaries in preparation for laying eggs. Surprisingly, the testosterone levels in female song sparrows at the peak of breeding season are just as high as those in males, and sometimes females will become pretty aggressive also, especially to other females that encroach in their territory. Sometimes females will even belt out songs of their own. These songs are usually just like small little song fragments or unpracticed titters that kind of resemble the songs of like juvenile male song sparrows, but they are capable also of singing full-blown songs just as pretty as those as males. Come spring, both genders also undergo outward changes too. The female forms a brood patch, basically kind of a bare area of skin she uses to incubate her eggs, and the male's cloaca will start to poke out of his body a little more, making it easier to mate. And finally, this cascade of hormones also causes birds to shed off their worn winter feathers and put on a fresh coat of feathers for courting, called their nuptial molt. As the breeding season draws to a close in late July, hormone levels begin to fall, testes shrink, and a second or post-nuptial molt is triggered. Aggressiveness also begins to wane as they prepare for winter. However, there's kind of a second territorial spike in late autumn as young males seek to establish territory, but this quickly wanes as November approaches. Come January, the cycle starts to repeat itself. Now, if you're unfortunate enough to be an unmated male song sparrow, you will either still defend a territory, although a much smaller territory than a mated and breeding male, or will just be a floater that are tolerated on the outskirts of other males' territory. Or maybe you'll try to emigrate to a new area. Alright, so that was a lot. So, basically, you're a male song sparrow and you've successfully found a mate. You've defended your territory. Now it's time to make some bird babies. Both male and females search for a suitable nest site together hidden among grasses, weeds, or shrubs. The nest is usually no more than 15 feet off the ground and sometimes on the ground itself. Often there is some body of water nearby, uh, maybe like a woodland stream, a pond, or a river. The female builds the nest over the course of about 5 to 10 days, often working during the morning hours and weaving grass, plant stems, and bark to create an outer shell and then lining the inside with soft grasses, roots, and animal or human hair. Males will half-heartedly help with the nest. Um, Often they will act like they're helping. They'll just kind of like pick up a stick and drop it over and over again. Um, But their main focus is on singing and defending their territory. Oh, that was a pretty song. I did see one account from 1933 in Columbus, Ohio, where a bachelor male song sparrow was observed building a haphazard nest himself. The following year he returned to the same backyard and built a better nest this time, but still he had no mate. Luckily the third year he finally found a mate and raised four broods. And four broods, that's a lot. These guys are small, they're rapidly growing birds, they're able to raise several broods in one season. How many broods they tend to raise uh, is dependent on where they are, the farther north, the shorter the summer, and obviously the less amount of broods they can raise. Um, and also it depends on how well they can provide for the young based on like their experience level and how much food they can find. But song sparrows will raise anywhere from one to seven broods in a breeding season, although it's very rare that all these birds succeed. They may start a nest, have it eaten by a snake, and then start all over again. They might use the same nest over and over, or build an entirely new one each time they raise a brood. Predation is definitely a problem with these birds. Remember, they're small and nest pretty close to the ground. I saw one study that showed only 42% of song sparrow eggs end up becoming adults, with almost all the mortality coming from nest predators. The female lays about three to six eggs per brood. The eggs are oval, and I saw the color described as a pale Niagara green with red or brown spots. The female does the majority of the egg incubation. Remember, she's the only one with the brood patch that helps supply heat to the eggs and they hatch over 12 to 15 days. Nestlings hatch naked except for a sparse black down covering and their eyes are closed. I saw them described as being particularly clumsy. They can only change the location by means of uncoordinated wrigglings. Both parents feed the nestlings. The baby birds seem to be particularly fond of caterpillars and after three to four days, they can open their eyes and by day seven, they are much more coordinated. They can preen themselves and they'll hop on the nest edge. Sometimes they are also ready to leave the nest this early, but it may take 14 days for them to fledge. They leave the nest before they're able to fly and rely on plant cover to remain hidden from predators. Luckily, by day 17, they're able to fly, and then they join their parents in searching for food. The parents will continue to help feed them until they are about a month old. By eight weeks old, juvenile song have reached adult size. Once fully fledged, young males will disperse from where they were born and raised to nearby areas with suitable habitat. They will establish a territory if they can, but more than likely they will have to move around the territory of four to six established males, this is that floater period that I was talking about, where the young song sparrow moves within a larger floater range, then hopefully establish territory And it comes spring. This floater stage is when songs are added to the young bird's repertoire, and then in spring, the young bird will typically set up a territory next to or among the tutor birds, and may even take over the territory of a tutor that perished during the winter. First-year birds have a particularly hard time defending their territories. Other song sparrows recognize their inexperience and will intrude on their territory much more so than second or third year birds. Interestingly, throughout song sparrows lives, they grow in some places and shrink in others. The wingspan of song sparrows increases throughout their life while the tarsus shrinks. The tarsus of birds, um, it's what looks like the leg of the bird, but actually it's more akin to a really long ankle. One last note on breeding, I found two very weird cases where song sparrows helped raise birds of another species. One occurred in the 1950s in Cadensville, Maryland, where a pair of cardinal and song sparrows shared the same nest. Unfortunately, none of the song sparrow eggs hatched, but three cardinal eggs did, and the song sparrows acted like an aunt and uncle to help the cardinal parents feed the young even long after they had fledged and were clearly cardinals, not song sparrows. Another case occurred in 1995 in Quebec, Canada, where researchers who were observing a yellow warbler nest noticed a pair of song sparrows coming and feeding the nestlings. In the following days, the yellow warbler parents began performing less and less care of the nest and just allowing the song sparrow parents to take over. The song sparrows didn't do this out of any altruism on their part, um, but rather it seems that they are just really bad at recognizing when an egg or nestling isn't theirs. The reason I say this is because they are particularly prone to being brood parasitized by brown-headed cowbirds in the east and bronzed cowbirds in the west. These birds lay their eggs in other birds' nests and shirk all the work of parenting. I saw one account where there were seven cowbird eggs in one song sparrow nest. That's a lot of wasted effort raising bird babies that aren't even your own. Song sparrow nestlings can really suffer when there's a cowbird baby in their nest, because while the cowbird babies don't directly harm the song sparrows, um, they grow faster and can outcompete the nestlings for parents' limited food offerings. It's been proposed that cowbirds cause significant mortality to nestlings due to malnutrition. And indeed, most of the mortality seems to happen while they are eggs or nestlings. As I said, only about 42% of eggs make it to adulthood. Song Sparrow parents will defend their young and their nests. A bird as large as a catbird or hairy woodpecker that gets too close will be met by parents adopting a nest posture of outspread wings, down-pointing tails, and if this threat fails, they will attack. Song Sparrows within a neighborhood will forget about their normally aggressive behavior towards each other to mob owls, hawks, and snakes that are nearby and threatening their nests. Cats are especially hated and feared by song sparrows, but this is a learned behavior. Captive-raised song sparrows instinctively give alarm calls when exposed to owls or hawks, but they don't do it for cats. Wild song sparrows, though, certainly know that free-range felines are up to no good and will belt out alarm calls. Keep your cats indoors, people! I also saw a case where an ornate box turtle was observed eating song sparrow eggs. And, of course, song sparrows can get common bird diseases such as the fungal disease Aspergillosis, avian pox virus, as well as the usual host of mites, blowflies, and blood parasites that plague many bird species. Natural forces like starvation, flooding, and hard winter also take their tolls on these species. First-year birds are especially prone to dying off in the wintertime. If you look at some of the many subspecies of song sparrows, you'll notice a pattern. Subspecies in more coastal areas tend to have darker plumage and more black streaks instead of brown. Researchers have theorized this may be an adaptive strategy to combat feather mites that thrive in shabby, worn-out feathers. Birds are prone to decay in the wet, windy conditions of the coast, and so these subspecies of song sparrows have a higher melanin content in their feathers that helps preserve their structural integrity while also giving them a darker color. Apparently, this is a common trend in North American birds and is turned Gloger's rule. Great, another rule to throw around along with Bergman and Allen, but Gloger is kind of a little bit more fun to say. <laughs> Territorial behavior seems to be the limiting factor in song sparrow population. If a male cannot establish and defend a territory, um, he will not attract a female um, and will not have babies, will not reproduce, and that's the end of his line. Even though I said this is a common, widespread bird at the beginning of this episode, their populations are decreasing. Between 1966 and 2014, the populations of song sparrows shrunk by as much as 30%. Subspecies that live on islands are particularly vulnerable. The Santa Barbara song sparrow, which inhabited Santa Barbara Island, one of the Channel Islands in Southern California, was once abundant and had evolved its own distinctive plumage and calls. Throughout much of the late 1800s and 1900s though, goats, sheep, rabbits, and house cats brought to the island by settlers began to decimate the plants and wildlife. However, it wasn't until an intense fire in 1959 that completely charred two-thirds of the island that the final nail was put in the coffin for the Santa Barbara song sparrow. Despite extensive studies by ornithologists, the song sparrow was moved from the endangered species list to extinct. So while the current population estimate is at around 130 million, don't let that number fool you. Species are constantly at risk from humans' often unintentional disastrous effects on the environment. Alright folks, we're reaching the end here on song sparrows. I'm going to go into their evolutionary history and wrap up with some final fun facts. Big thanks to Dak, who helped me get access to some of the articles I needed to research the evolutionary history of song sparrows. I met Deck on Reddit of all places. Uh, check out the Dirty Bird Podcast uh, Reddit page. Uh, I have some cool pictures on there. Um, but song sparrows' distant origins come from the Proto Papua New Guinea continent, uh, just north of present day Australia. About 45 million years ago, the aucine ancestor first evolved and went on to spread across the world, forming thousands of songbird species. One large group of these birds, the superfamily called Emberizoidae, crossed over the now-submerged landmass of Beringia, which connected Siberia and Alaska, and for many North American songbirds we know today, like Cardinals, New World Warblers, Buntings, and New World Sparrows. This is a pretty massive group, which encompasses about 8% of all living bird species, and the songbirds within it are distinctive for having 9 primary feathers on each wing, versus the more ancestral state of 10 primary feathers on each wing. These ancient, New World songbirds first arrived around 23 million years ago. From looking at one zoom tree of life, the very diverse New World warblers split off around 19 million years ago, and New World blackbirds around 12 million years ago. Sparrows' closest relatives are juncos, brush finches, brush tanagers, and towhees, all of which are in the family, passerillidae, and, like sparrows, are largely seed-eating birds that build cup-shaped nests. When these birds were originally named, their relationships weren't entirely clear, and this has led to some birds being named sparrow, such as the Zapata sparrow of Cuba, when they are really more closely related to towhees. Some species within this family evolved fairly recently. Down in Central and South America, there's some species that developed within the past few hundred thousand years. One remarkable one I stumbled across is the yellow-thighed finch that lives in the highlands of Costa Rica and Panama. you got to look this bird up. It looks hilarious and elegant. It's got this smooth black body with wonderfully accented pantaloon-like yellow tufts on its upper legs. The yellow-thighed finch differentiated as recently as 400,000 years ago. That sounds like a long time, but it's only about 100,000 years before we modern humans evolved too. But anyway, millions of years ago, from one of these common ancestors, the New World Sparrows formed. Genetic analysis has revealed eight clades of the New World Sparrows. Basically, in the past, there were eight different splits from the common ancestor that gave rise to the species we know today. The Song Sparrows clade contains its closest relatives and fellow members of the Melospiza genus, Lincoln Sparrow and the Swamp Sparrow. It also contains the striped Sparrow, Vesper Sparrow, and bell sparrow, among several others. The sparrows in this clade don't all prefer the same habitats. Some are more grassland specialists, while others, such as the song sparrow, prefer brushland. This surprised researchers because previously sparrows have been grouped on similar appearance and habitat preference. It seems to make sense that sparrows that prefer the same type of habitat would be more closely related. However, other clades contain grassland-loving sparrows, too, This suggests that there was a lot of transition over time between environments for ancestral sparrow species. They would go to the forest, then to brushlands, then to grasslands, then back again in many permutations, causing even closely related sparrows to prefer different environments. What does seem to be clear, though, is that all South American sparrows came from multiple colonization events from North America. According to One Zoom Tree of Life, the song sparrow's closest relatives are Lincoln sparrow, the swamp sparrow, and the endangered Sierra Madre sparrow, which it separated from about 2.24 million years ago. This is no surprise when you look at the birds. Lincoln sparrow is very similar to the song sparrow in appearance, except that Lincoln sparrow has a buffy coloring to it. I had to look up exactly what the color buff was. Um, Basically it's like tan red. Lincoln Sparrow has a scattered on its finely streaked chest, and its mustache is a much redder, buffy color versus a Song Sparrow's white mustache. The Swamp Sparrow is very close to the Song Sparrow in behavior. Males will perch high up on reeds to belch out their songs and defend territory. And Swamp Sparrows are aptly named. It appears that they evolved to specialize in swamps and marshes that are just wet enough that Song Sparrows don't like them. While song sparrows like a little water in their territory, like a forest stream or the field right by a pond, if everything is completely flooded, like a small forest after a year of heavy rainfall, they will abandon the territory and swamp sparrows will move in. And if more dry habitat is made, like after the destruction of a beaver dam, song sparrows will move in and kick the smaller swamp sparrows out. The Sierra Madre sparrow lives in the Sierra Madre Occidental mountain range in Mexico, and shares with song sparrows a similar central black spot on the chest. Unfortunately, this bird is threatened with extinction due to its really restricted range and habitat destruction in order to make grazing land. So there you go, not the most detailed evolutionary history, but in general, a nine flight wing feathered songbird crossed over the Bering Strait to North America tens of millions of years ago and eventually formed New World sparrows along with some close relatives, the juncos and towhees. And don't forget about that yellow-thighed finch. I know, you're googling, looking him up right now. (laughs) The sparrow group had eight major differentiating events that formed the eight clades, of which the song sparrow clade contains a mixture of brushland and grassland-loving sparrows. And its closest relatives are Lincoln sparrow, the swamp sparrow, and the Sierra Madre sparrow. And a final note on the subspecies, the song sparrow was likely confined to only three areas of refugia during the glaciation events of the Pleistocene. Based on mitochondrial DNA, these areas appear to be Queen Charlotte Islands of British Columbia, the Atlantic coast of the northeastern U.S., and the final area in Southern California. Obviously, while these populations were separated, they began to differ from each other genetically, and we can only assume an appearance and song, too. There also could have been some other areas of refugia, such as Baja California, parts of Texas, and Florida, but they didn't leave as large of a genetic footprint behind. As the ice sheets began retreating around 125,000 years ago, the song sparrow population absolutely exploded and began colonizing newly thawed lands. When populations encountered areas of transition, such as mountain ranges or large bodies of water, these acted as barriers that allowed differentiation to occur between semi-isolated populations. So much wind. Today sparrows are a ring species, meaning that their connected ranges form a circle with clear territory and also areas of overlap. Different male subspecies sing different songs, and as I said in the beginning of the episode, subspecies can have very different plumages. Females show an obvious preference for song and plumage within their subspecies, but hybrids do occur. The rings of song sparrow subspecies are an area of active research. Some have been well mapped out, while others are not well documented. So even though there's a massive amount of information out there on these birds, there's still a lot more to learn. Alright, I'm going to wrap up this episode with some final interesting facts. The sun is starting to set out here in the mountains on Otter Creek, and I really don't want to be stuck out in a bog uh, (laughs) in spring in West Virginia. So here we go. Rapid fire, rapid flight. Song sparrows have been measured flying at 15.9 miles per hour and may fly as fast as 21 miles per hour. Experiments that I kind of thought were a little mean, where um, sparrows were caught and then released at increasing distances away from their territory, show that they can still find their territory, even when released up to 1.5 miles away. Song sparrow body temperature hovers around 109.6 degrees Fahrenheit, although there was a 10 degrees variance there. The oldest known song sparrow was 11 years old, 4 months, and was found in Colorado. The hearing of song sparrows, um, the range appears to be from 1,000 Hz to 80,000 Hz, with their best hearing sensitivity occurring around 4,000 Hz. In comparison, humans hear from 20 Hz to 20,000 Hz. And finally, while I couldn't find any Native American legend specifically about song sparrows, I did find that the Cherokee usually lumped all sparrows together, calling them Jisquea, which translates to, really a bird. I don't blame them. Without binoculars, different sparrow species are really hard to tell apart. But the song sparrows' song was unique enough to give it an onomatopoeic name. Si Ixowa, an imitation of its song. Si Ixowa. So there we go. That's all about song sparrows. Um, Remember what I said at the beginning of this episode, I need reviews, people, and I'm going to do some sticker promotion stuff. Free shit, all you got to do is write a review. (laughs) Alright, I'm seriously getting worried about getting stuck out here, the sun is setting and the temperature's dropping. So, thank you for listening, and as always, stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, and our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks everyone for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Our logo is made by T.J. Renoski with inspiration from my beautiful fiance, Lauren. Love you babe, even though you don't listen to the show. Our intro music is by Ricky Bastone and our outro is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Find them wherever you get your music. Send listener mail to DirtyBirdPodcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at DirtyBirdPodcast we're also on Facebook, YouTube, Reddit you name it, Dirty Bird's been there my fault. I've been in bed on some horses at the track, driving to Brooklyn ain't never coming back On the ground in the concrete jungle I might get into a little rumble